My name is Roy Malloy and this is The Dawn of Crime, a podcast that I've dedicated to the infamous and the people that have added flavour and spice to the shaping of our national identity through their shifty crookery. (laughs) Um, Looking at true crime, historical true crime, uh, wherever I can find it. Um, I've also got a book series called The Dawn of Crime. Um, There's three of them published so far, with a fourth due out later this year. This episode I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, an elusive chase. Uh, as a historian, I, I find that the, the work I do is all about um, kind of hunting. I look through huge databases, um, often it's just literally lines and lines and lines of names, and uh, some, <laughs> some people find that kind of thing ex- extremely frustrating. Um, I, I love nothing better. Like, that's my zen place, is skimming my eyes through line after line after line, looking for, hunting for uh, a name. And it, it kind of feels like hunting. It's that primal instinct to catch the prey. Um, and, and yet I have such failings with so many other things that are online-based. Like I cannot, for the life of me, manage to make a spreadsheet. I'm not kidding. I, I have zero skills with some things. And uh, anyway, so when I'm hunting, uh, it, it creates. It's like a. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, right? You, you'll be reading and reading, and you, you look for. In this case, I'm looking for Claude Taylor. Claude Taylor is the older brother of uh, legendary crook Squizzy Taylor, organized gangster, thug, pimp, racketeer. Um, homicidal and sociopathic maniac. Unpredictable, vicious. Uh, These words all ring true for both Squizzy and Claude. And um, I think the work I've done over the last year or so has led me to believe that perhaps Squizzy Taylor was a supported pantomime that required a larger cast than just a one-man show. And I I think one of the things that leads me to that opinion is there's other people in the history very significant historical figures that achieve huge things but there's a, there's a common theme and one of the things I like to do as a history researcher, I, I like to look for themes and patterns and then try and, you know, the discussion then takes place as to what could have contributed to those patterns so for, for Claude Taylor uh, I see Claude as a supporting character who not only shapes uh, the making of Squizzy Taylor but he is, uh, he's essential to the ongoing myth generation. So there's two parts to the making of a, a grand figure, you know. So you get someone, and I, I, I do this cautiously, I mean no disrespect, but you put together um, leaders of big movements or groups through history. So let's look at uh, the uprising of and the creation of a key figure like uh, Jesus, or Muhammad, um, and I don't link these people together, but also then there's people like fascistic dictators like Hitler, uh, Mussolini. They never seem to come, or they don't come up just by themselves and just become. They come up uh, lifted up by a group of other people. So for Jesus, it's disciples. Um, for Hitler, it's the, the his political party, they're always supported by a group of people that you have to dig a little bit to see. They're not usually very evident. Um, and so that 
that kind of I feel like unless the person does a solo act themselves and makes a decision to do something traumatic uh, like you know there's so many maniac gunmen who take to the streets with a, a firearm and they do something horrific and then they become known but they're not a systematic criminal with longevity on the streets they're just a maniac who did something awful and like the guy who shot John Lennon we remember one man for one act but Squizzy Taylor became a movement almost uh, an organized criminal isn't just a you know a maniac that does one erratic thing they do lots of erratic things but over a long period of time and part of this part of the systems required to be an organized criminal is a system of not getting caught or at least knowing a boundary that allows you to not be implicated in the crime and therefore still you don't get caught for a long period of time. You can't be an organized criminal if you get caught. Um, And part of that system creation is a need to have people that do some of the work for you. So from a very early age, Claude Taylor was that right hand for Squizzy. Um, They both share a common trauma and I've never really been able to pinpoint exactly what it was. I've got a fair idea, but they, from an early age, they, they, they sustain a common trauma of some kind that makes them both go headlong off the rails. They have, they're, they're part of a brood of several kids, I think there's eight in total, and possibly two half-siblings, but they've got younger brothers, uh, at least one of them, Stanley Taylor, ends up in front of a magistrate who gives him a fine, but... Claude and Leslie are a fair bit older than Stan and I can't find a link that they're ever involved in crime. In their early days and from about the period of 1906 to 1914 maybe, um, Claude Taylor is a very big instrumental part of Squizzy's beginnings. He's with Squizzy uh, on one very significant occasion where the pair of them with iron bars and Squizzy has a pistol, another mate has a, a lump of wood. They they beat a young boy named William Prentice in um, in Fitzroy. Um, and you see, kind of get this snapshot that Squizzy is all lip, all mouth, screaming abuse while others do the work. Now, they, they have their, their father died when they were quite young, but he himself was a pretty theatrical kind of guy. He was known for a comedy act where he would do a tap dance in gumboots. And, you know, that, that was probably a very big thing back then. In fact, I, could think it would, I think it would be quite humorous now, but he was, he was an intelligent guy, um, and he seems to have given them a love for, you know, the theatrical and, and the pantomime kind of stuff. And so you get these two boys who have this family upbringing of um, being involved in poetry recitals, pantomimes, and so forth. And then they... That's in their personality at some level. Even though they become brutalised over a one or two year period of time. And a lot of their, their their later life seems to be a reflection on this window of time where they had something horrific happen to them. And then the, the orchestration of these crimes that they commit in their early days where Squizzy is the principal um, character and Claude is almost like the chorus and so Claude Taylor for me is a fascinating um, first general of what becomes the army of Squizzy Taylor 
I think everybody has a Squizzy Taylor story. Um, you get everybody has an uncle or a grandfather or a great great uncle, and they, you know, if you, you're in a crowded room and you say, "Has anybody heard of Squizzy Taylor?" You'd be hard pressed not to find at least one person who says or who doesn't say, "My great grandfather was a something." You know, I'm keeping a list of people I come across who have a grandfather or a great grandfather, somebody that was a, a runner or a um, you know involved somehow in Squizzy Taylor's uh, efforts. Um, just this morning I heard from a, a lady and she said my um, my grandfather was a newspaper boy for the Herald and he worked near the, the um, Parliament steps in Burke Street and he was asked to run messages for Squizzy on a couple of occasions. Very real story, very um, you know, provable. But there are so many stories like this and you can't manage all that by yourself. And so then... As I, as I try and research Claude, I, I kind of see this picture of a guy who, like, there's a certain level where early on they seem to be just surviving, and the world was a very poor, uh, destitute place for a, a kid without a, a, a good family base in 1900. The world was coming out of a horrific economic crash. Um, there was such, su- such poverty out there. And so, you know, the first times you see Claude, you see him stealing from a cash register when... Um, or actually, you, you see him and his mate stealing from a cash register when the shop owner was distracted. Um, you see him uh, in shadows after that. You, you kind of see him, but he's not necessarily named. But as you start to read more about Squizzy Taylor, you see stories emerge where... Squizzy is nabbed, pickpocketing someone, and then he hands the money to someone that passes behind him. And they describe Claude Taylor, but they don't know his name because he vanished. And you see that a lot. So as I, as I research Claude, I keep trying to dig further and further into who he was, but he, like any good criminal that doesn't get caught, he probably makes a, a practice early on and all the way through his career of not being obvious. And so he, I find him living in a, a dwelling, uh, kind of a boarding house, um, off the back of an area of Little Burke Street up the top near um, Parliament. And he's living in a pretty, look, I think it was probably a factory at some point, it's this squalid uh, boarding house. And he's got a room there. Um, around about 19... 06, 07. Um, and then you kind of lose track of him. He moves to Sydney in about 1914. And he gets done a lot. Um, he gets all the way through till uh, the mid to, uh, the late 20s. He's in Sydney. And you, you get a picture there more easily of him than you do in Melbourne. Uh, his police record in Melbourne tells you a bit about his crimes, but doesn't really tell you a huge amount about you know the kinds of crimes it it tells you what he did but doesn't describe in much detail how he did it the police gazettes in Sydney while he's there tell him kind of a a grander picture of what he was up to he wasn't just brutal by that stage he's mugging people where you know he's probably bailing up a drunk guy on the way out of a pub taking his money and he, he for every one charge he gets where he gets caught He's probably done, I don't know, countless amounts of other, not just criminal things, but violently criminal things. 
he arms himself with a razor. He's known to... He's unpredictable to the police. And so he kind of... That means he varies his crimes. All violent, but he varies his his MO. And that it, kinda, it probably makes him more difficult for the police to anticipate where he's going to be and what he's going to do. Because he goes between bashing people to handling stolen goods and fencing them for other people. Um, but then he also arms himself with a razor in the early 1920s. And he's, he cuts people really savagely, not just a little slice, but I'd have to think that that moment where you're robbing someone and you say, give me your money, and they put up a fight, you'd flash a razor and they'd probably say, yeah, all right. Or they might put up a bit more of a fight. He, he's a very equipped and capable fighter with his fists, but it's like he wants to use a razor. He wants to experience that um, experience of, of cutting someone and he does and so it's it's that that psychopathy where he is able to cross over between um, you know wanting the money the outcome to enjoying the process of hurting someone before he gets it and so the, it distinguishes Claude as a uniquely savage individual um, but then just after Squizzy dies in 1927 Claude's in jail at that time and then he vanishes. He vanishes from almost every record. Uh, pe- uh, I'm in contact with a couple of uh, surviving Taylor family relatives whose, uh, in some cases, great-great-grandfathers or grandmothers were siblings to the, St- the Taylor brothers. And um, none of them have any idea where Claude died. I'm, I must admit, I'm not quite at the stage yet where I'm extremely heavily invested in finding that detail, but I will. Um, but Claude vanishes just after being released from prison when he's about 40 years old. Now, 40 in 1920 is different to 40 years old now. I remember a friend of mine in Perth, uh, who's in his late 70s, uh, we were talking about people that were retiring when he was a 20-year-old. And he said, when I was 20... A guy would retire at 60, and he would be lucky if he got 10 years of retirement. Like, that was unusual. Five years even, he'd be dead. And he said, we, we kind of watched people, they retired, we'd be almost ready for their funeral. Now, I have a mother uh, who is sprightly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say she's older than 60, just for her dignity, which is very important to me. Um, she's more active than I am. <laughs> and I, I dare say she will... If not come close to a hundred, she'll she'll come close to a hundred. So, you know that that's with modern health and things. But Claude lived a very difficult, brutal, um, violent life. He he would have not only dished it out; he would have received a lot of physical harm. Uh, and so, I think really worth remembering is that that kind of all adds up over time. The damage you've sustained. There's no no telling that. He didn't receive razor attacks himself. His uh, his criminal record talks a lot about uh, the marks and the scars that are on his body, and he has quite a, a an extensive range of them. He in one of his Mel- he's also heavily tattooed, and this also speaks volumes. He has a, a a large amount of tattoos that are all over his body, 
included, uh, they're not just one or two, they're a lot. And each tattoo in this time and period usually signifies something. And again, I haven't researched exactly what these tattoos are likely to mean. But among them, he's said to have a five-pointed star on the back of his right hand, uh, a cross and the word Ruth, R-U-T-H, inside his lower right arm. There's no real trace of him having a child, um, but it, there is a very strong possibility that's a child of his or maybe an ex-lover. Um, he's got an anchor with a snake on his upper right arm, which says he worked at the wharfs. There is one newspaper account of Claude witnessing a workplace accident where a guy was severely hurt um, on the wharfs, and um, I'd, I'd have to say that that probably relates to that. He's got a bird on his right shoulder. Now, a swallow can often mean someone you've killed. Um, these days, criminals put a tear on their cheek for a, a person they've killed. But um, he's got a heart in the back of his right hand. He's got the letters CL on the lower right arm. Uh, he has a star with a heart in the middle of his right left arm. Sorry, he's <laughs> his lower left arm. And a butterfly on his left shoulder. Then he's got a, a very heavy, deep scar on his chin, uh, on his near his jaw, on his left-hand side. Now, there's a couple of others I can't quite decipher. I can't read them on one of his records, but they're much the same. And this is a guy who's been beaten and bashed to smithereens. So, you know, whether or not he got out of jail not long after Squizzy died, hard to tell. He got out, he got out of jail after the funeral. So he was in prison in Sydney when Squizzy was shot by Snowy Cutmore. And then he, he was released but vanishes after that. Maybe he took it as a warning. Maybe he understood that, you know, that this is what comes of violent men. Play with guns. Hard to tell. But um, I have every aspiration to continue researching Claude Taylor. Um, but we'd love to hear from anybody that is related to the, the Taylor family. Anybody that has any idea what became of Claude Taylor or is willing to spend a bit of time doing it. Um, I have been Roy Malloy. I hope you've enjoyed this. This is a podcast that I've been making a, kind of in as a, a subsidiary to the book series The Dawn of Crime and uh, if you're so inclined jump on the internet google The Dawn of Crime by Roy Malloy M-A-L-O-Y uh, make sure you also like my author page which is uh, Roy Malloy author on Facebook uh, thanks for listening <laughs>